Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Happy Halloween, Wendy. Happy Halloween, Mike. It's finally here. It is finally here, and it almost it makes me a little sad. Yeah, I know. You get that like feeling kind of like when Christmas is over, like, oh. Yeah. Except now we have fe- nothing to look forward to. Right. It feels worse than when Christmas is over because now if November, if I uh, wear like a mask and dress up and stuff like that, people are going to think I'm weird. Well, so. that's not anything big. No, I guess not. I guess not. So <laughs> anyway, but the thing is, let's not think about because Halloween's not over yet, everybody. Yeah. And on see you on the other side, Halloween never ends. So we, <laughs> it's the nightmare before Christmas for the rest of the year right here. Uh, so hope everybody has an awesome Halloween and, and does some fun stuff, enjoys some traditional things, maybe non-traditional things, whatever you like to do. Uh, you're also never too old to go trick-or-treating. That's true. Although you might get some weird looks. Yeah. But th- th- when you wear a mask, you can just tell people you're 15. <laughs> really tall. Which is my plan <laughs> for this Wednesday. <laughs> So, you know, and the thing is, in Madison, where we live, you actually trick-or-treat on Halloween night. Mm-hmm. And that was not my experience growing up. You never would go out and trick-or-treat on Halloween night. It was always trick-or-treating, like, the weekend before, like, the Sunday before or something. Yeah. I mean, because in the 80s, I guess the early 80s, when I was growing up, it would always be, I mean, number one, my mother would check every little piece of candy I would get. <laughs> of course. To make sure. I mean, we talked about this in a previous episode, our episode on deadly candy. Which I think was ha- Halloween a couple of years ago. We talked about uh, deadly candy. So my mother would always, you know, check every single one, making sure there was no pins in it or whatever. And then uh, it just would be, you know, a cer- like a certain time. Like we never even trick or treated in the darkness. Yeah, we never did either. Yeah, they always so- had it earlier in the day. It was safer and more convenient for everybody. You know, being on the weekend, usually like a Sunday afternoon or something like that. Yeah, and the thing is, it would have been great if the adult's costume had just been driving around in a white uh, windowless van, like around all the kids trick-or-treating. <laughs> would be an excellent scary costume to go as. Uh, back in the day, I didn't even think about that, because everybody was really worried about that. Um, yeah. You know, you'd be abducted and stuff like that. And the thing is, though, on trick-or-treat day, the free candy spray-painted on the side of the van wouldn't have the same effect because they're getting free candy everywhere. No, I live across the street from a elementary school now. And so my white non-paneled van that says free candy on it um, isn't as popular as I thought it would be. <laughs> Only time no, but you the- do get asked about the Sunspot van being yeah. parked. <laughs> People are constantly like, why is that Sunspot van like what's- lurking around the school? Yeah, what do they do there? It's like, I, I got to park it, man. I don't have a garage. Like, <laughs> that's what we're doing there. We're parking our equipment. Anyway, uh, Halloween time, trick or treat. Anything in particular uh, Halloweeny that you're planning on, Wendy, or any tradition that you're excited about this year? Um, well, okay, since it lands on a Wednesday, that's a little unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do have plans to go out with some friends, and I'm excited about getting costumed up because this weekend I did go out, and you and I had a show on Thursday. Yes, um, that we sort of did a a light costuming for. You know, we didn't go full out face makeup and masks and everything. But right. um, and then I went out last night and I did kind of a little devil horns and tail and everything like that. But Wednesday, I'm going to go all out. And I think I'm going to wait to tell you my costume. 
Well, you have to, we'll take some pictures and we'll put it in the next episode then so people can see it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. But in order to understand it, you have to watch the series Glow. All right. So okay. that's a hint. Okay. It's a hint for everybody. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward. I'm going to, uh, I'm probably not going to dress up on Wednesday because I'm taking my two year old trick or treating. Uh, but that, you should dress up. I Maybe I'll dress up a little bit. And she's old enough to eat the candy? No. Or do you get to eat the candy? I, I eat all oh. candy. Like she <laughs> okay, gets a cool. couple of things that she might like. She likes little pieces of chocolate yeah. and stuff. But otherwise, I check the candy, quote unquote, by eating it and then eating her some. Well, she's growing fast, so this might be your last chance to eat all our candy. Mike. Right, to steal our candy. This is my shot. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And then, obviously, uh, I'm going to get dressed up this weekend for some Halloween fun. But on Friday, I went to go see a band called the Toon Yards uh, at a very haunted club Ooh. in Madison called the Majestic. And like, I would say 80% of the people were in costume. Cool. That's fun. It's a quirky style band. Like, It's a, it's a pretty quirky weird world beat kind of band i think uh my wife described it as like club yodel like this woman's voice is like oh and she's always like sampling her own voice Funny. and like harmonizing to herself it's really cool but oh. um everybody was like in like weird costumes and like we were right behind two guys in like dinosaur like full like, full like dinosaur hoodie like onesie kind of thing nice <laughs> and so that was that was pretty fun that's fun um, well We'll have another chance next weekend also. That's the one good thing about Halloween being on a Wednesday is we get to oh, have yeah. two weekends of celebration. And our good friend, the ghost hostess with the mostest, yes. Lisa, has her annual Devil's Night birthday party. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be awesome because people really go all out for that. And I'll be doing my thriller dance annual oh, performance yeah. for that. So, yeah, yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. I'll be dressed. My wife and I have a group costume again this year for Lisa's party. So uh, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, that sounds so that's probably going to be the, the most dressing up I'm going to do on Halloween. But I'm excited. You know, I've never been too much of a costume guy, though. I always love Halloween. I love the ghost stories. I love all that. But I'm not the kind of guy who goes all out with costuming. Like our friend Tim, who is a, <laughs> our friend yeah. Tim is a musician. <laughs> and he, I mean, a great musician. And his... Halloween costumes, like he's not even a ghost story guy or anything, but his Halloween costumes were always something incredible. I remember one year we have a Halloween party when we're in college. Tim comes as a table, <laughs> like he comes as a full table with like a checkered tablecloth with his head right over the checkered table and his head and makeup of the checkers of the tablecloth. And so he went as like a three dimensional table and you're like, oh God, he really did. It, it was awesome. Well, I don't remember that specific one, but I do remember another one because it seemed like he always had to incorporate a cardboard box <laughs> yeah. into his costume, thereby making it almost impossible to enter or leave any room. Because <laughs> I'll be like, oh, here comes Tim. But uh, I do remember the year when he was a table with like his upper torso coming through and then he had like a fake pair of legs. So it looked like he was sitting on the table <laughs> yeah, no, like floating around. So he, something ridiculous. And then the next year he came as one of the, like piloting a mech, like piloting a mech from the Matrix. Oh, yeah, and he right. had the entire mech like was, you know. So cool. It was made up so that it looked like he was sitting in the mech and walking around and talking to people. And it just like, it, he must have taken, you know, three or four weeks to work on this costume. Yeah, that's impressive. So I've never, I always respect the people who go all out with their Halloween costumes because I love Halloween and I love everything about it. Yeah, it's fun to see people pull the creativity out. Yeah, the Halloween costumes. So, but you're you're not into it though, huh? No, I not love it. I, I love costumes. I'm just not that going all but out. But making costumes. 
Yeah, that's just not. I I don't have a kind of physical skill for making something. Well, if you have a cool costume, please uh, share it with us. We'd love to see it because it's always so fun, especially if you won the costume contest. Yes, please do. We will retweet <laughs> our favorite costumes at um, that. You can find us on Instagram at Other Side Podcast, and would love to re-insta or retweet Other Side Talk. <laughs> anyway, send us the pictures of your best costumes. We'd love to see them, and so that's fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Also, I've been watching horror movies all week. I mean, I, I kind of do that anyway, but yeah. like, like I've been, uh, I watched the entire Haunting a Hill House last week, which is awesome. Yeah, I watched the first episode for our Patreon hangout because that was yeah. one of the things we talked about this week. Um, but I'm really eager to get back and watch the rest of it because it pulled me in for sure. Yeah, and then uh, last night I I rewatched the Haunting Hill House. It's an, another adaptation of the same book, and it's a 1963 film, and I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. So mm. I rented that on iTunes, and I uh, scared myself last night watching it, like with the headphones on, the surround sound, and whatever, uh, <laughs> in the dark at like 11 o'clock at night. So that was fun. Was it still as scary as when you first saw it? Yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't like when I was eight years old and watching a black and white film and hearing the sounds and thinking that this world seems so strange and scary. And I also knew what to expect because I'd already seen it. So uh, it wasn't okay. quite that, but I, I was able to appreciate the, uh, the art of the film now in like mm. the, the shots, the cutting, um, knowing how difficult it must have been to do some of those things without computer graphics. Like when there's a, there's a spiral staircase that features uh, in a lot of scenes and that spiral staircase, like the camera's like going up at like around it and things. And you're saying like, how do they, you know, how did they do that? They had to physically set up like a little tram with the camera, oh, like a, little, like yeah. a little track to be able to get the camera up the spiral staircase. Like today they just 3d model it and you know, they do it in the <laughs> right. computer and you could like a college student could do it, but that, but back then he had to do it with all this kind of, uh, like physical stuff. So that's fine. Expensive. Yeah. It's also fun to watch a movie where I think this kind of gets into our topic today when we're talking about Halloween. And it, it's something we haven't discussed really in the past. We've talked about the paranormal aspects of Halloween. We haven't talked about a lot of the real stuff uh, that's scary um, that's happened on Halloween in the past. Mm, yeah. So this particular film, The Haunting, the original 1963 version, is very light on special effects. When I say light on special effects, I mean there's no, it doesn't show you the monsters at all. Like the, you know, there's no, I mean, all the, everything is auditory and mood and sound. And so there's no real visuals to it in, in that aspect of it. Like today, where we see like somebody gets stabbed, like eviscerated. Um, uh, yeah. And, and a lot of that was changed by, uh, the, you know, the, really the first slasher film was John Carpenter's Halloween. And now the, the sequel to Halloween is the biggest movie in the, you know, biggest movie in the world this week. And, and is it good? I haven't seen it yet. I okay, just haven't, I haven't had a chance to get out to the movie theater yet because uh, I've been binging The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. <laughs> There's so much good stuff to watch. But yeah, I've right. got it. I wanted to see it too, but I, I suppose I should watch the original one first. Yeah. And, well, you know, the thing is about the original one is that it's not very supernatural. Ah, you know, okay. So the, the original one, you know, the character that created Michael Myers, like in the beginning, you see him as a little boy and he kills his sister and then he escapes from a mental institution in the film and you know he comes back to his hometown to, to kill somebody else and stalk him so that's that's a real fear something right. that actually <laughs> a psycho you know yeah and the thing is when john carpenter was talking about how he developed it so john carpenter's the guy he's directed the thing the fog um starman assault on precinct 13 prince of darkness uh, in the mouth of madness big trouble in little china 
Hmm. There's so many films that he's directed that I'm a gigantic fan of, even though I'd say his stuff since the year 2000 has been slightly lackluster. Like he lost, like somewhere in his fifties or whatever, like his talent just like, I, th- I think he smokes a lot of dope. So he might've smoked it right out of himself. <laughs> but uh, he had a string of, from like the mid 1970s to what I would say, I'd say the early 1990s where he was just hit after hit after hit after hit, like of, at least to me of like great films. And so he's developing this concept of Michael Myers and they're, you know, they're working on Halloween and there really hadn't been a, a slasher film before. Like Halloween establishes all of the things we associated with it. The kids having sex, the killer comes in and, you know, like, mm. like if you act like a bad girl, you, you, you die. If, you're going to you know, get caught. Yeah. If you're a sarcastic jerk, you get stamped. <laughs> um, if you're the, the good virginal character, that's, that's Jamie Lee Curtis. She's the good virginal character, the, the original final girl that makes it to the end of the movie. That's like Halloween is the movie that developed those cliches. The cliches that they deconstruct and scream, with deconstruct and scream in 1996, were created, like really established by this movie. And, you know, also the thing is, is there's like John Carpenter specifically says like, well, there's no particular reason behind it. You know, Michael Myers, he's just, he's just evil. And he says that he went on a, a, a class trip in college to a mental institution in Kentucky. Now, I don't know what kind of class trip would let you go to like a mental institution or something like that. That sounds <laughs> you know, amazing. Like, how do you get to, you know, that almost seems like taking the kids to the zoo. Like, hey, we're going to the zoo today to see what? Psychopaths. <laughs> well, was it so an actual functioning yeah, like a psychology class or something. It may have been a psychology class, but you know, John Carpenter said that he visited the most serious mentally ill patients, and among those was a young boy around twelve or thirteen years old who gave him a schizophrenic stare. He said it was real evil, and he said he found it unsettling, creepy, and completely insane. These are all quotes. Oh, and that was the inspiration behind the character of this of Michael Myers, somebody who had nothing behind his eyes except the instinct to kill (sighs) which is so sad when you think about it because that poor kid probably just who knows what he had gone through or what you know he might have just been like on some medication or something but i think that's the whole point of michael myers is (laughs) yeah that he's not supposed to have any empathy whatsoever like he's just i mean his he's an he's like the terminator yeah like you never feel i mean he's the terminator before they made the movie the terminator but in the terminator (laughs) the, the terminator is this his only job is to kill. He's, he's no empathy. No, there's no nothing human about him. There's nothing relatable about him, and that's why uh, the Terminator is super scary. Yeah, and so Michael Myers is the same kind of thing. He wanted to create this character that was pure evil. There was nothing. There was no reason behind uh, why he did what he did. He was just a he was just a killer. And in the original film, the murders take place on Halloween night. So things start to get supernatural in the second film because like you can't kill him. And you find out that he's hunting Jamie Lee Curtis's character because he's his sister and everything. And all that stuff came about because they wanted to make a sequel to make some money. Like John Carpenter thought the movie was done with the first movie. Then they offered him like a, a whole bag full of money. And he's like, well, we can keep this going. Hmm, maybe we, we can, can make it work. Yeah. <laughs> like his whole idea behind Hall- like with Halloween, Gosh. what he wanted to do was make like an anthology group of films. So every film would be a new story that took place on Halloween. Oh, that's cool. I like that idea. What happened was the first one was such a big hit and it was, it like established him. Like he was directing like TV movies and stuff to, you know, before this. And then he makes this film, it gets huge. It establishes a whole new genre. And they're like, well, we need to make a sequel. The producer's like, we need to make a sequel to this. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And they're like, here's a bunch of money. He's like, I'll think of something. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know what to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so then they establish the whole thing of it, you know, and then eventually becomes more of a supernatural force than just a, like a pure evil human killing machine. Hmm. Okay. And, you know, I don't know how they resolve that in this newest version, because this newest version doesn't take anything that came in after the first movie into consideration. So if you go see the new version directed by David Gordon Green, the director of Your Highness, which is one of the worst films, <laughs> I like turned it off in the middle of it. <laughs> really? Yeah, I was oh, too, no, that's it was bad. Like a, well, it was like a Cheech and Chong fantasy parody, kind of Cheech and Chong-ish in a stoner comedy. <laughs> okay. And I just was, I was, I got too bored halfway through. Uh, and I like stoner comedy sometimes, but unless, uh, I'm just, I guess I wasn't in the, uh, yeah. the right mindset, you should, I, you should say. Uh, so you needed, uh... I wasn't in that Colorado <laughs> mindset. <laughs> okay. Uh, when I saw this, I was like, oh, this is boring. But he also directed the Pineapple Express, which is a stoner comedy that I thought was, was funny. Ah. So anyway, the new version, I want to see what, if they keep on the, the supernatural aspect or what they keep with it. Because eventually Halloween got to be that there was a cult involved and that Michael Myers was the personification of this ancient evil killer. Ah, you know, wow. Okay. So they got to that, like, finally, like Halloween 6 is when they <laughs> get to, you know, they always invent a new way to keep the evil going. Sounds like it might be a fun one to, you know, binge watch the whole <laughs> a yeah. movie series like a <laughs> like marathon a, well you know i spoke of the movie scream before and the writer of scream kevin williamson he did write a halloween sequel in 1998 called halloween h2o and jamie lee curtis did come back for that one oh. uh, and it was good i thought it was you know i thought it was really good halloween water well that's the it was played h it's supposed to be 20 years later halloween 20 years later oh, so h20 gosh. The, but then everybody just eventually just called it halloween h2o Oh, man. So what makes me feel old is I remember seeing Halloween H2 in the theater <laughs> okay. 20 years ago. And I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe it's been 20 years since Halloween. Because we like it's something we studied in film class. Like I think it's before, like we even had our, like, our film class to it. Like I took a date to it. Wow. Like, so we could talk about Halloween. I'm like, yeah. Like I love it. I'm always a big John Carpenter fan. And uh, the fact that now it's the 40th anniversary and I can remember the 20th anniversary. Uh, it's just anyway, I'm just going to take a, a, a sip of my Metamucil here. <laughs> As we talk about it. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and we're talking about Halloween costumes from 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, anyway, the idea is it's a true crime. It's a, it's a murder that happens on Halloween night. And uh, there are a lot of murders that have taken place on Halloween night. Mm, sadly. Just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of weird stuff that's taking place. You know, probably one of the most, most famous ones, one that really got a lot of attention in the past 20 years, happened to... Uh, a poor girl in, named Martha Moxley in 1975. And the reason that just became such a big deal is that the Kennedy family was involved in this. And finally, one of the guys got convicted oh, of the murder, boy. like, you know, 25 years after it happened. Yeah. So Greenwich, Connecticut is obviously uh, a, a place with a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Greenwich, it's not, it's not a poor place. And, you know, people live, I mean... Uh, Truman Capote lived there. Regis from Regis and Kathy Lee. <laughs> He's Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, it's just a beautiful place. But in 1975, you have a poor 15-year-old Martha Moxley. She's found on Halloween morning, like with her pants ripped down mm. and uh, just, you know, murdered in the, in the backyard. The night before, she had attended a like a devil's night party. 
Okay, so Mischief Night, and we have a whole episode where we talk about the Devil's Night. Actually, when the the party we're going to on Friday, our our, our ghost host friend Lisa, uh, she was born on Devil's Night. Yeah, she did a whole episode with us about that. Yeah, because she was also a first responder in one of the burbs of Detroit, where Devil's Night's the biggest, you know, the, the biggest deal. Mm-hmm. And so she goes out for Mischief Night. Uh, she is seen that night giving a kiss to Thomas Skakel. And he's the nephew of Ethel Skakel Kennedy, who was married to Robert Kennedy. So the second one that was killed in the uh, the hotel in Los Angeles by Sirhan Sirhan, who Sirhan Sirhan also claims that he was mind controlled and that it might be a Manchurian candidate assassination oh situation. Uh, but that's a different, we'll, we'll get to mind control at a later time. Gosh. But anyway, Robert Kennedy's nephew, Thomas Skakel, well, she's kissing the, the murder victim the night before. And of course, he is the first suspect because, you know, he was seen kissing her. Mm -hmm. She's found underneath the tree in her own backyard, pants pulled down, even though there's no sign of sexual assault. So at least in the, they did the kid or whatever, there's no sign of it. Mm. Uh, She, she was bludgeoned and stabbed with a golf club. Oh my gosh. Horrible. And they found the golf club inside Skagel's home. So now you got a famous family involved. Mm -hmm. And of course there's with an unlimited amount of money. And also the Skakels not, weren't just rich because of their relationship to the Kennedys. They were rich because like the, the patriarch or the Skakel family established this, this business in the early 20th century that made them incredibly wealthy. So that everybody's super rich. And being rich in the United States, it seems to be the best defense in a court case. It does. And they can't really find any evidence that Thomas Skakel actually killed her. Hmm. So it's a cold case until you know the early 1990s. And then what happens is uh, Michael Skakel, Tommy Skakel's brother, the guy who was making out with Martha Moxley, his little brother then gets accused of the murder because he was kind of a, in the the 70s, he was a troublemaker. And he's about the same age as Martha. But what happens is, is that he becomes an alcoholic, like in his teenage years, he ends up going to an institution. And in the institution, he says to somebody that he killed Martha. And then that person goes to the police and stuff like that. And then they eventually bring him to trial um, that he killed Martha. I mean, he already admitted to climbing the tree outside of her bedroom and touching himself. Oh, wow. Like that was, that's who he admitted to. Like, not mm. just like sitting like at home, like, oh man, what a cute girl or something. Like he climbed the tree outside of her bedroom. So he's stalking. To watch her. Yeah. But he still claims that he's innocent. They tried to blame the fact that they also, there was a live-in tutor inside their house. And so they were trying to blame the, the live-in tutor mm. who was the actual murderer. And so what happens is in 2002, uh, Michael Skakel is convicted of the murder and he gets sentenced to 20 years in prison. But what happens after that is he keeps on fighting on appeal and fighting on appeal and fighting on appeal. And just earlier uh, this year, they decided that he needed to have a new trial. So he, he had enough evidence that he didn't do it. And now they're trying to get a, a, a new trial. But the thing is, what we're forgetting about is this girl is still dead. Like, she was bludgeoned to death instead with the golf club on Halloween of 1975. And we're focused on the fact that the family is famous. We're focused on the fact that it got a ton of, you know, media attention. And are we focused on the justice? We keep forgetting the fact that this, you know, this girl is the one. She's paid the ultimate price. Mm-hmm. So that's probably one of the most, most famous uh, Halloween murders that happened. And it had a lot of attention because of that. But, you know, another Halloween murder that um, probably, this is what probably ruined our childhood trick-or-treating. Oh, gosh, yeah. Was, uh, was Ronald Clark O'Brien 
in uh, 1974, they called him the Candyman or the man who killed Halloween. Candyman sounds so nice and fun and happy. Right. He does sound, he does sound nice. Like, oh, it's the, it's the Candyman. The Candyman can. He's living in Deer Park, Texas. And he's an optician. He's married. Uh, got a couple of kids. And what he does is that he's got financial troubles. He's got $100,000 in debt. Ooh. So obviously the optician business isn't going very well. But what happens is he's got a life insurance policy out on his son. And he gives his son a cyanide-laced pixie stick. So you guys remember pixie sticks is like the sweet. It's like, it's like eating sugar, like straight up. It's like somebody mashed up sweet tarts, basically yeah, a pixie stick. like fruit-flavored sugar, basically. Yeah, straight up fruit-flavored sugar. And like everybody loves pixie sticks. But he puts cyanide in his son's pixie stick. Oh, so sick. But he also, he wants to try to fake everybody out. So he also gives the candy to his daughter and four other oh, children. Oh my gosh. But his, his daughter, the other kids didn't eat it. Uh, just just his son ate it. And, you know, this guy was the deacon at the church. He sang in the choir. What he tried to do, the way he tried to, like, fool his kids into it. So he's taking both the kids trick-or-treating. Then there's a, the neighbor and a couple other kids. So they go to the house, and the, the neighbor doesn't answer the door. And you know that that neighbor's either like, there's no way I'm going to be home on trick-or-treat night. <laughs> Yeah, that's, like we all had that. We all had that neighbor. Like, I can, well, I'm, I might be able to relate to that. <laughs> yeah, Turn off all the I, lights. There's a couple. <laughs> yeah, right. In the days before Amazon Prime, if you came to my house, you were either trying to get me for like and knocked on the door like after five o'clock. You're either like a Girl Scout looking for to sell me some cookies. You're a Jehovah's Witness looking to convert me. You're some political person getting me to sign up for your petition, right. or you're a trick or treater. Either way, you want something from me, and I want nothing from you. <laughs> So that's all. I mean, but the thing is, so the, the neighbor doesn't answer the door and the kid's like, oh, fine. They, they run off to the next house. So the kids run off to the next house because this person's answered the door. He stays behind. He's like, oh, I'll wait a minute to see if I can get any candy from him. Um. And then he shows up with the pixie sticks. And so like, it's just a real premeditated sicko kind of thing. And then what happens is uh, later on at night, his kid's like, oh, I want to I eat some of the candy. He chooses a pixie stick. And first of all, you know he's a bad father because he gives his kid the pixie sticks at the end of the night. Uh, and <laughs> well, you're never going to give your kid pixie sticks like because that is straight up kitty cocaine. That kid's going to be up for, you know, the rest well, of the night. He knew in this case it was the beginning of the longest night. Oh, I know it's terrible. But, <laughs> but what a poor bastard. And so the kid tastes the candy. You know, he says, oh, it's bitter. It doesn't taste good. Aww. And then he gives his son some Kool-Aid. And that's it. The kid vomited and died. He oh, died on the way to the man, hospital. That's so sad. And Well, then people start freaking out, obviously. Because not only did he do the unthinkable, which kill your own child, <sighs> is that also people are like, somebody is poisoning pixie sticks. Yeah. I mean, people also, remember when people were poisoning like Tylenol tablets too? Yes, vaguely. <laughs> yeah. Like there was a whole, and that's why we have gel caps because with gel caps, you can't like, if they break open, you know that the gel cap has been tampered with. So that's the whole idea. We have gel caps because people were poisoning Tylenol. Oh man. So this sets off an entire like freak out kind of thing. But eventually they figure out that it's, you know, that he did it himself because, you know, the guy who he said gave him the pixie sticks wasn't even home. Hmm. He was an air traffic controller. So he had an airtight alibi because, you know, he's like, well, I was at the airport and there's no way I couldn't, I couldn't, there's no way I couldn't have been at my desk because right. no airplanes crashed. 
200 people confirmed that this guy was at work. That's pretty solid. And then they start looking into this Ronald O'Brien character, the Halloween killer, and they find out that he's 100 grand in debt. And he was about to be fired in his job. His car was about to be repossessed. He'd already defaulted on several loans. And the family home was about to be foreclosed on. He had taken out life insurance policies on his children in the month preceding the death. One month before uh, Timothy's death, his son, he took out uh, another $20,000 policy. And so he, he had like $60,000 of policies on his kids. I can't believe that anyone would be that desperate to get out of debt. I mean... Hundred grand, yeah, it's a lot, but it's not uncommon. Yeah, you know, right. It, this is America. <laughs> Everybody's in debt. <laughs> right uh, today they are, but back in the nineteen seventies, I mean, a hundred thousand dollars was probably like, you know, half a million dollars mm. today or something. But half a million dollars could not make, convince me no, to kill a kid, honestly. So I mean, he is the reason that my mother checked my candy every Halloween coming back for trick or treat, <sighs> and. They finally, I mean, obviously the jury is like, that's it for you. Uh, so, and in Texas. Uh, right? Look so, out. <laughs> yeah, go directly to the electric chair. Right. Do not pass go. Like he, his Monopoly card didn't even say go directly to jail. It said go directly to the electric chair. <laughs> and so, but he didn't. They give him the, the lethal injection. Uh, so the Halloween killer, the man that killed Halloween. And that's, that's like one of the most, like it's one of the saddest stories I can imagine. Because it's not even random. It's, you know, he he did it. Yeah, that's just uh, to, sick you know. and ugh, horrifying beyond like Halloween movie horrifying. Yeah. And it couldn't even be like a crime of passion or something like that. Like Martha Moxley, you can argue that, oh my God, this thing's happened. Stuff got out of control. This guy, pre- he had to make these pixie sticks. Yeah. Um. Anyway, he's dead. And I'm not even a capital punishment kind of guy. And I'm like, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, all right. Well, uh, on that depressing well, note, I mean, oh, true crime. Well, the thing is, we it's so it's we, right. Ugh. True crime's a tough one. And the thing is, is that we're afraid of all these. You know, people are afraid of the things that go bump in the night. You know, we talk about demons, or you know, remember that guy I interviewed who like the devil showed up at his house, yeah. or whatever, a couple months back, and like the the devil does not always come in a demonic form. And most of the time, the devil comes in human form, and, and evil is some kind of, some kind of weakness. It preys on something inside us, and that's—I tell you what—that's why I don't believe in demonic possession mm. or in things like other people talk about. Like, yeah, that guy they had an attachment that made him do horrible things. I'm like, did the attachment make him do horrible things? Was it the demon did that, or was it like giving in to some kind of weakness? Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm the—I'm the, the kind of—I mean, I've, I'm human like everybody else. But I just, I feel like humanity is perfectly capable of doing horrible things to each other. Like we talk about the case of Patricia Ward and she's living in Long Island and it's Halloween. And what happens is a whole bunch of people see this guy, Derek Ward. He's dragging like some kind of body out of the apartment right around Halloween and people think it's some sort of prank. It's a de- he's dragging a decapitated body out of the apartment into the street. And that's not that weird of a thing to see during the Halloween season because people put these elaborate decorations in their front yards that include corpses and, you know, obviously mannequin type corpses, but like zombie bodies right. and stuff. So you, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, or for a haunted house prop or something like that. Yeah. So he brings the decapitated body out in the middle of the street, leaves it there. And then walks three blocks where he then jumps in front of a train. 
and dies. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. He kills himself. It's a it's a murder suicide. But the remarkable thing is people see him walking around with the body in his hands, you know, like dragging the body out and nobody says anything because they just think it's a Halloween. Oh, my gosh. So I guess if you see something, say something, and you probably wouldn't call the, I, you know, to tell you the truth, if this week I saw somebody walking around with what looked like a, a mannequin body or whatever, like the head was gone. It could be anything, you know, you'd be like, oh. You would not immediately assume that it's an actual person. Yeah. You would assume something else. You'd be like, oh yeah, well, obviously somebody's making a joke or it's a haunted house yeah, time. Yeah, it seems um, more likely during Halloween than <laughs> the alternative. Yeah. And what happened is Derek Ward, he was mentally ill and he always had trouble with his mother who was, um, she was a professor at Farmingdale State College. Uh, she was well liked. She was great. But he had a history of violence and the death of his grandfather triggered it. And then what happened? I mean, he killed her, leaves the body out and then went to go kill himself. Mm. And the really remarkable thing I think is that nobody called in. Yeah. You know, I think. You know, I think of, and maybe I'm just hypersensitive to stuff now. Like maybe I wouldn't have called it. But, you know, one time I was driving by the mall in Madison, the West Town Mall, and I see a guy crossing the street and not in the crosswalk. He's crossing the street and he's carrying a rifle. Now, he could just be going to... <laughs> Fleet Farm. Sporting goods store <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And he's like, I'm scared. But like the rifle wasn't in a, it wasn't in a bag. It wasn't in a bag. Yeah, that's back. bizarre. He was straight up carrying a rifle. And walking across, and not at the crosswalk, you know, like walking in the middle of the street. And I'm like, huh, like something's up here. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I see this guy, and the crosswalk's not even that far away. Like he could have just taken the, the crosswalk like 10 <laughs> yards away. And I'm like, this dude's, I mean, he's walking around with a rifle. Yeah, what's going on? And I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm at stop sign. Like, what if he decides to blow me away? So I just like, uh, I just called the police. I was like, hey, um, there's a guy walking towards the mall, like not in the crosswalk or anything, and he just has a rifle like out. And I, it may not even been illegal. And I got, you know, nothing against guns and gun rights and stuff. Hey, I'm all for it. But, you know, maybe a little less threatening unless because he, he, he wasn't out in the hunt. And it's, not, you know, maybe a man hunt. But in the end, nothing happened and there was no reports of anything huh, that day. Thank goodness. Maybe you saved everybody. Or maybe he really just was looking for some bullets or things like that. Like maybe he was just going like, oh, I just, you know, I brought my gun. What kind of bullets go into it? Maybe it was a prop for a play or something. Yeah, I, sure. <laughs> that's what I hope. But still, you think you'd put it in a backpack. Yeah. Or, I mean, he just, had, he just had it out like he was the Terminator. And it's not normal in a city to be carrying a firearm. No, no, like, it's not normal. Not in a case. And so I guess the last time I saw something, I did say something. Good job, Mike. Yeah. All right. I, maybe I saved everybody, or maybe, or maybe I didn't save anybody. But you know, here's one that I, that I thought was uh, interesting, and also uh, it's got a relationship to. I mean, we were talking about the uh, they called him the Candyman or the man who killed Halloween, and our serial killers like we always give them names. Yeah, cute sounding names. Right. They, oh, that's the, the <laughs> that's the the Gemini killer or uh, the Zodiac killer or the son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz, the son oh, of Sam. Man. And so these, you know, these cutesy son, like the, uh, who's the, like the green river killer. Isn't that the guy they just found in California? 
Oh, I don't know. The, the Golden State, the Golden State Killer. They just finally got him. Hmm. That was Patton Oswalt's wife. Just oh. finished a book about it. Like he, she died, and so she wasn't able to see. But it was her book that helped bring a lot more attention to the really? case. And now they got the guy. Cool. And they they got the guy through one of those like DNA services. Wow, that's amazing. So that's right. So if you've, I mean, I've done the twenty three and me or whatever. So uh, I'm out for committing serial crimes. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that. Um, my my wife, she said that book is awesome on the the the, sec, the Golden State Killer. But the thing with they give me like cutesy names, Golden State Killer, like the Golden State Warriors are like the champions. Yeah, right. You know, and I mean, son of Sam, like, hey, is Sam a nice guy? So, <laughs> but right, and that's the thing. Like we give them these cutesy names, and I think I was talking about this with Nick Redfern not too long ago, and maybe it was even like right after he, Nick told me his his ghost story when we were at the uh, Minnesota Paracon. But like that idea that if we give these people names, it kind of, I mean, number one, it's good for selling newspapers and things. Yeah. And it's, it sounds way more sensational when the newscaster is like the Candyman killer struck again. Right. Well, you know, in the Wisconsin Dells, we're actually, we're having our first ghost tour in the Wisconsin Dells this evening. Mm, Exciting. Um, The Wisconsin Dells has the head of a, a, a German serial killer from the early 20th century, the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum has the like the the severed head. I still can't believe uh, that. That's preserved. It's <laughs> insane. Of Peter Curtin, who's known as the Dusseldorf Vampire. Yes. And they sold all they sold all of these newspapers and everything in Dusseldorf by the vampires on the loose. And the newspapers would sensationalize things saying he drank people's blood and things. And this idea, these these giving killers names, number one, it's good for the newspapers. But number two, it also turns these people from humans into monsters. It kind of it lets us compartmentalize them a little bit. Like David Berkowitz is your podiatrist. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's Dr. Berkowitz. You know, David Berkowitz is not the son of Sam murderer. No, that sounds more like a fictional character almost. Right. And they're like, oh, the son of Sam. And like that gives him that turns him into a monster. And it lets us compartmentalize, it lets us take the human out of him. Yeah, he sounds more like a movie character. Right. Because the thing is, like, Son of Sam, like the Dusseldorf vampire, kind of blamed a lot of the things that he did in his life, the crimes, on feeling rejected by the world and feeling like no love for other people because he didn't get love from them. You know, I, I think that's a John Carpenter did Halloween and didn't want to give Michael Myers any kind of human motivation. I think it was because he didn't want you to feel sympathy. For Michael Myers. Ah. Like when, you know, David Berkowitz is an adopted, he's an orphan, he, all those kind of things. You're like, oh, well, you know, the, the world made him hard. You know, Peter Curtin, the Dusseldorf vampire, had to witness his sister being sexually molested by his, fa- by his father. Mm. Um, and they all grew up in this small, late 19th century in Germany, in this like tiny farmhouse, 13 kids and a, a bastard of a father. You feel some kind of sympathy for these people that did horrible things to other people. Yeah. Like they struck out at the world. I mean, son of Sam, he walked up to people in cars and blew their brains out. And so, um, you know, I, I like the fact that John Carpenter's like, no, evil. That's it. Like, don't feel bad for Michael Myers. He's evil. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we always have that tendency to, to humanize. Like, well, why did they do this? Well, why does the Terminator kill people? Because that's, that's his job. That's what he's there to do. <laughs> Terminate. So in, <laughs> in the early hours of Halloween 1981, Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman uh, are living, they're living in Chelsea in New York. They're severely beaten before being shot in the head execution style. The apartment's ransacked. And, uh, you know, uh, the New York police thought it was some kind of gang 
activity. You know, that's how they thought. They thought like, well, people looking for drug money, something like that, a drug deal gone bad. But then what happens is, now, uh, the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, he's already in prison by this time. He's already been caught. But his prison roommate told the police that David Berkowitz predicted that these people were going to be killed weeks before it actually happened. Mm. So he, he comes to the police and he's like, you know, I think David Berkowitz, I think the son of Sam knows something about this. And the whole idea is that everybody thought the son of Sam acted alone. But Berkowitz also told people that he only committed three of the murders that he was convicted for, that he was part of a satanic cult. Hmm. And those people were, you know, were killing some of the, uh, some of his victims. And, you know, I'm always the guy that's like satanic cults always BS. You know, I'm like, it's satanic panic. Get out of here. I don't, you know, I don't buy it. <laughs> so I'm always that kind of guy. But the thing is, I can see why people did believe in satanic. Because when you have criminals who are saying that, you know, they're part of a satanic cult. So David Berkowitz said that he had joined a satanic cult in 1975. And that he only killed three of his victims, and that other shooters uh, were involved with him, that other cult members were involved in every one of his in- incidents. But he said he he couldn't tell people who the cult was, and he couldn't divulge the names because then they they'd kill his family. Oh, come and like his, you know, and his parents didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, like his, you know, Dad Berkowitz's parents. It's not a, like there is no. I mean, Sam was the dog that he said possessed him. Okay, so if you guys know the son of Sam, he's a serial killer, and. You know, he's trying to get on a reason of insanity, and he says that he's possessed demonically by this dog that would talk to him. And the dog's name was Sam. And so that's why it was the son of Sam. <laughs> so his, you know, his dad's real name wasn't Sam. Like there was no, like Sam was the, was the demon dog that he said inspired him, you know, to do these murders. And he, he said he was part of a cult. So, well, that's the thing, like nothing ever that has been proven or anything like that. And, you know, people said he's trying to move some of the blame or everything because he's not a dumb guy. I mean, he admitted that the whole demon dog thing, that he did that to try to get out of going to jail, but uh, uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. But the thing is, it's weird that this murder, so the murders that happened on Halloween, you know, what happened to these poor people in their Chelsea apartment still has never been solved. Mm. And so the only real lead they got was this, that they said that David Berkowitz knew who did the killing. That was members of his cult that did the killing because he couldn't have done it because he was in prison. Ah, okay. And he was able to describe their apartment. He was able to describe the location huh. and stuff. And like, how would he even know about that? Right. So like the police, they couldn't get that much more out of him. So they discounted it. And it, you know, it had to be revealed after it was done from his like prison informant and you know people in prison are always trying to ratty on each other to get like special privilege i mean i guess i don't know i've never been to prison but i can imagine that you're always trying to rat out each other so you can get special yeah if you know anything you're gonna share it because what have you got to lose right yeah oh david berkowitz told me all about it can i get my cigarettes (laughs) you know kind of thing well i was thinking don't they like exchange uh like shortened sentence oh right but it's not just cigarettes. I shouldn't say like, oh man, that guy gets a pack of smokes. Things that are actually, no, it, you know, high stakes. Right. And so it's just a, a weird thing. And also that completely unsolved. I mean, David Berkowitz, I mean, he's written books. In fact, they changed the laws because he enjoyed his fame. I mean, when he was the son of Sam and he was killing people, he was writing letters to the newspaper. He was, you know, he was sending letters out to like, radio show hosts and things like the, the terrified uh, Spike Lee made a movie called Summer of Sam that wasn't about the killings, but was just about the rest, how the rest of New York felt. Oh. 
when there was a when there was a killer walking around shooting people randomly in the head in their cars. You know, like it's not just. Uh, I mean, that's that's the, the terrifying thing. You know, and I think the last time we ever really had something that terrible. Remember, when there's a sniper in Washington. I was just D. thinking about that when you said that. Yeah, they were just killing people, like thrill just killing random. people to strike terror in the mm-hmm. heart. You know. Like when people really talk about the, you know, you go to like the bad part of town or something like that. Like if you're not going there to like buy drugs or do, then you're not going to probably get in yeah. trouble. Like the worst thing that's going to happen to you is going to be like, what's this jerk doing here? <laughs> you know, or, or somebody's going to tell you to get lost. Like the bad part of town, if you're not looking for trouble, it probably won't find you. And so the idea that people are randomly shooting is, I mean, you could be lucky enough to win the lottery. You could be lucky enough, yeah. you know, like well, you'd be lucky to just get popped. And that's how the son of Sam was. And the summer of Sam, that movie kind of really portrays that well of the, like the kind of fear that was overtaking people at that time. So, I mean, those are a couple of the, uh, you know, the, the horrible things and true crime that happened on Halloween. But the one that I, you know, I feel most interested in is also unsolved. And it, this one, this one hits a little bit closer to home. And we've talked about uh, these kind of cases on the podcast before. Uh, we did the interview with our buddy Scott, who worked on the DVD where he, they investigated uh, the mysterious drownings in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Yes, we interviewed them actually originally in episode forty-seven. Wow, that was like yeah. 10 years but if you ago. want to hear the full thing, check out that episode at uh, othersidepodcast.com slash 47. And, you know, and we talk about this next case on uh, the Minneapolis Ghost Walk because we go on the Hennepin Avenue Bridge, uh, you know, where it happened. So, you know, one of the many urban legends you may have heard about Minneapolis um, involves the Mississippi River and it involves college-age men drunkenly falling in the river and not being found until months later. So a lot of those guys from lacrosse, probably the most famous case that happened was in Minneapolis. The guy named Christopher Jenkins, and he's partying at the Lone Tree Bar and Grill uh, on November 1st, 2002. He arrives with three of his friends at 10.30 p.m., and since Halloween weekend, he's wearing a Native American costume. Probably, I mean, early 2000s, is still, his costume was still probably unfortunate. I saw somebody wearing one last night, and I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah, it's in Madison? Yeah. All right. It's just, you don't see people out like wearing like the Tonto thing lately or whatever, walking around going, right. It's not like the village people. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so he's out dressed in his Indian costume by midnight. They think he's too wasted and he's asked to leave. And that's the last time anybody ever saw him. The thing is though, because he's wearing his Halloween costume, he gets kicked out of the bar and People say he got kicked out of the bar because somebody spilled a drink on him and then the bouncer sees him and thought that he wet his pants, like he's so drunk he wet his pants. And his girlfriend had his phone and his keys and everything in his wallet. And so they just kick him out and don't let him back in because they thought he was too wasted. Now it's 20 degrees. It's Halloween in Minneapolis. Ugh. And I spent a couple of Halloweens in Minneapolis and it's cold. <laughs> and I lived, I mean, I lived maybe a quarter mile um, from the Nicolette Mall where that Lone Tree Bar and Grill is. And I didn't live very far from the Hennepin Avenue Bridge at all. And so I mean, he was front page news when he disappeared. And I remember it because I was, I was working at a TV station in La Crosse. And so in La Crosse was already a big deal because anybody who goes in the Mississippi River, they're going to talk about it because they had so many people in La Crosse go to the river. And they were hoping that they thought they could find him, that he didn't go into the river. They were hoping he just disappeared and it was a missing guy, college age, young, healthy dude. And 
Four months later, his body washes up near St. Anthony Falls um, in Minneapolis, still in his Halloween costume. The police said that it had to be a suicide or accidental drowning, even though there's plenty of security cameras and none of them showed any such thing. I mean, the, the last security camera like shows him walking on the bridge and then that's mm. it. A prison inmate admitted that he was present when Chris was thrown off the bridge, but uh, that didn't add up. The, the police just ruled it to be that uh, he was intoxicated and it was accident and he just, you know, he fell off. But the thing is, when you go to the bridge, you'd have to, he'd have to climb it. It would have to be a, a suicide for the reason he would go. Yeah. And that's kind of when it came out in, you know, in 2003, the police said that's it. But what happens is a few years later, the police issue an apology to his parents. And the medical examiner says they found enough evidence to change the case to homicide. Wow, that would be okay. disturbing yeah. as a family member. Right, so what are the parents going to think? So fast forward to 2008, you get two retired NYPD detectives, Frank Gannon and Anthony Duarte. And they come up with a theory that there's a group of serial killers now roaming the interstate highways along the Mississippi River. And they're killing young men all over the country and throwing them in the river to hide their crimes. So the detectives claimed that there was a pattern of smiley faces at each of the scenes where the victims went into the river, and then they called them the smiley face killers. Now, now this is a Halloween panic waiting to happen, saying that there's a group of serial killers working <sighs> yeah, together. Yeah, really? The smiley face murder club. And the thing is, I mean, 10 years later, they still haven't had really had any evidence. And so the smiley face murder club kind of... It's kind of dissipated. The initial book that came out and the initial detectives, the case has still gone cold. And so even though it's still listed as a homicide in the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, you know, they have they have no mm. idea. But now there's a legend brought over by immigrants to the Midwest of a mythical water man who leads people to their death and can even entrap them with one of his hairs and pull them into the water. The native tribes that originally were in Minneapolis also talk of water spirits that made the area near a dangerous place. The Chippewas have a water panther that they warn is deadly. And also, a part of the sacred rite of growing up in that area as a, as a native was fasting near the water. So they would spend some time near the water and go on a fast as one of their coming-of-age rituals. The fathers would tell their children to watch out for anything that comes from the water while you're fasting and not to accept it. So the idea is water spirits would come out and try to give them food. Ah, and you were not to take okay. it temptations so the evil powers will try to deceive you so i thought that was really interesting because it also connects into our whole history of fairies and that when you're in the fairy world you can't you're not supposed to eat anything right and you know when we were talking about uh on the equinox episode we were talking about maybon and also the uh, pomegranate seeds that uh, Demeter's daughter ate and so that the persephone became stuck in hades and that's why we have winter and so the idea that um, not only do the Europeans have that in their mythology of something drawing you into the water, but in the fairy, the fairy land of the Europeans, you're never supposed to eat anything. You're never supposed to accept any food eaten by or you know given by fairies. That also uh, the Lakota mythology has that same kind of thing. You're fasting. If something comes from the water and tries to give you food, you mm. don't eat it. So yeah, the water panther. Something in that area has just made it deadly. And that happened in Halloween, Halloween night of 2002. So to me, that's the closest to home kind of Halloween true crime story because uh, they talked about it so much at the TV station when I was there. I lived in La Crosse where those things happened. And now, you know, we talk about it every week on the Minnesota Ghost Walk. So 
you know, I hope that his parents eventually find some kind of peace in it because it's really oh, a sad so thing. So sad. But I can see where you, you know, you want your, you know, do, do you like the idea better that your son made that mistake of just getting wasted and falling off a bridge where it's his fault? Or would you prefer to have the idea that he was killed? I don't think you prefer either. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? No, I know. I know. But like, but, but um, then, yeah, it's just tragic no matter how you look at it. You know, and we're really fascinated with true crime. And we talked about this a lot with um, Amanda when we had our episode on serial yes. killers. You know, and we talked about why we're so fascinated with these, with these monsters, these people that we have to give names to. And, you know, we joke about, well, the veil is thinning and, and Halloween's a time for witches and devils and, and things like that. But Wait, um, who's joking? <laughs> right. No, it's, it's real, baby. No, but the idea that the stuff people really do to each other, to me... That's what I, that's what gets me the most terrifying because you know it was funny I was when I was watching the the haunting again last night early on uh, and this you know quote like directly from the novel where the doctor who sets up these psychic experiments says you know you don't have to worry because there's no case in history where a ghost ever actually killed anybody mm-hmm. yeah you know so like don't be too worried everybody because you know there's no cases where an, an incorporeal spirit has killed anybody but there's plenty of places. Yeah. for humans to kill each other so we are fascinated by it and, and the thing is there is a morbid curiosity Definitely. when it comes to these things absolutely i mean that's how shows like dateline in 2020 succeed because every episode is about some kind of true crime and how it either is unsolved or in some cases how it was yeah. solved but either way they're terrifying stories they're horrible things that humans have done to each other and you're seeing the real people who were affected by it or who experienced it in some cases so that kind of television is on constantly pretty much on any channel like if you flip through the channels you'll find it any time of day investigation discovery should be just called dead people <laughs> there's a whole crime channel <laughs> <You I> know? <laughs> yeah i mean we're obviously we're fascinated by it and you know sometimes people get fascinated by it. like when we talk about the martha moxley case and and uh, michael skakel and thomas skakel with that case, an author named Dominic Dunn wrote a book about it. And Dominic Dunn is an author who, uh, whose own daughter was murdered. Oh, gosh. And so he became kind of obsessed with writing about true crime and things. I think he eventually hosted a show on court TV, you know? Yes. And so, like, you, I mean, you can be a victim of this and have it affect your family in obviously the most horrible way possible and still have an obsession because maybe your obsession is learning why people do things, learning the motivation behind it, trying to come to grips with it so you can understand it for yourself. And, you know, we were talking about true crime, maybe think about murder ballads. Murder ballads, that's nice. For the the song (laughs) this week, because really there is a whole history of songs written about, I mean, half of what Johnny Cash wrote about you know, half of his songs are about killing people. I mean, his most famous line is, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Yeah, that's extremely morbid. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that we have this, this long tradition of murder ballads. And, you know, there was one that I didn't even know about until doing research for this episode that has been covered like 250 times. Whoa. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, we did cover, I mean, Whiskey in the Jar is it's a murder true. ballad. It's an yep. Irish murder ballad. It's about somebody who gets into thing, but there's no like, it's not a true crime song. No, no. Yeah. And I was thinking gloomy Sunday. Well, that's a sad song, but it just makes you feel sad. (laughs) It's depressing more than anything. (laughs) And the depressing song, but you know, people would write songs based on something that really happened. 
create it. And I couldn't get over how fact that this particular song, Frankie and Johnny, and I, you know, I funny, I didn't even know it was a song. I knew that there was a movie with Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer called Frankie and Johnny. That's oh. based on the story. And I'd seen the movie and I didn't know there was a song about it. But it's been, I mean, everybody, like uh, Merle Haggard did a version of it. Uh, Johnny Cash, Elvis, uh, Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke has like a, like Sammy Davis Jr. Those versions are like swinging <laughs> with horns. There's like a four part harmony version I watched where these guys were like, Frankie and Johnny, hey, so hey, weird. hey, hey. And it's all like, it's so happy and it's so fun. And it's, a you know, covered hundreds of times by famous people. And it's based on a real shooting that happened Goodness. in 1899. St. Louis, Frankie Baker, she's about 22 years old. And she's got a boyfriend named Alan Britt, who they called him Albert. Albert. Hmm. Albert was his nickname. And some of the sources say that Frankie was a prostitute and Alan was her pimp. Oh. But... Other sources say that they were they were lovers, and he was a piano player, popular young man, seventeen years old, uh, obviously wild oats to be sown, and uh, you know he's been with Frankie for some time, where he starts seeing a prostitute named Alice Pryor. Okay, all right, October fourteenth, eighteen ninety nine, Frankie catches them at a club, and Brit's playing piano. She confronts him. There's an argument. The next morning, she goes up to his room. Shoots him with a 38, wounds him in the abdomen, and he dies four days later at the hospital. And he says, you know, I was, I was shot by my girlfriend, Frankie. She's put on trial in November of that year. Um, but she testifies at the trial that he had beaten her. You know, he had pulled a knife on her. She said she shot him in self-defense. She said he was going to beat her, and he pulled a knife on her, and... They declared her not guilty of murder. She doesn't end up dying until 1952, so she makes it another 52 years. Wow. Uh, she lives a nice long life. You know, Albert does not. And so the thing is, within months of that case, they already have a song called Frankie and Albert. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah, St. Louis songwriter named Bill Dooley uh, is performing the song Frankie Killed Alan just weeks after the shooting. <laughs> 1904, it appears in sheet music for the first time. He done me wrong. And then uh, 1912, it's renamed to Frankie and Johnny because Johnny is easier to rhyme with than Albert. Okay. Yeah, Frankie definitely. Frankie and Albert. <laughs> mm, Albert's a rough Hubert. one. <laughs> now he's in the dirt. Like, how do you do it, right? Um, and then they changed the prostitute, Alice Pryor. They changed her name to Nellie Bly. And Nellie Bly is like a, a famous name. She's a journalist in New York. She's got nothing to do with this at all. They just changed the name Nellie Bly <laughs> because Bly is easy to rhyme with too. Yeah. Bly, die, fry, hi, Sai, kai, you know. Why? Because it's easy to rhyme to. That's why. <laughs> so, um, you know, in, in some versions of the song, Frankie ends up being executed. In other versions, she just goes to prison. But either way, Frances Baker uh, moves away from St. Louis in 1901 to escape the fact that she's now famous for murdering her boyfriend even though she's acquitted on it and 1933 Mae West makes a movie She'd Done Him Wrong sings the song Frankie and Johnny there's a 1936 movie Frankie and Johnny Elvis is in a movie called Frankie and Johnny wow that's based on the story so this I mean this is probably the most famous American murder ballad and it's based on a true crime that happened around Halloween you know in 1899 so that is the song this week. We're going to give you a little bit of our own version. Um, this one's based on more of a, a, a blues version uh, that came out in the 1920s. And so here is Sunspot 
giving you a little bit of murder ballads, Frankie and Johnny. Frankie and Johnny were lovers. Whoa, how they could love. They swore to be true to each other. He went down to the corner to get her a bucket of beer. She asked that big old fat bartender, how's my loving Johnny been here? He is my man. He wouldn't do me no wrong. Said, I ain't gonna tell you no story. I ain't gonna tell you no lie. He was here by the for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. We just came off an awesome hangout this week with our Patreons. Did we not, oh, Wendy? It was so fun. People even costumed up for this one, which is extra festive. Yeah, we love it. <laughs> and so we love hanging out with our Patreons. And we do it once a month. And we take topics. And we have a Patreon community. All this stuff. We'd love for you guys to be part of that Patreon community. And you can do that at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. That's right. Nice and easy. And you can join us for as little as $3 a month. Or you can be at the level that Dr. Ned's at, where he gets a shout out in every single episode. Hey, Dr. Ned, you are our guy. It was really good to see you at the show on Thursday. We hope you have a happy Halloween. And to every one of our Patreons, we hope you guys have an incredible All Hallows' Eve. And let's set this up to be the best year to be on the other side ever. Happy Halloween. This is also the fourth anniversary of our podcast, you know. Oh, yeah. Shoot. Happy fourth anniversary, Wendy. (laughs) Thanks. Happy fourth anniversary to you.